Hi, I'm Alex, and welcome to the Aspire podcast by Scotty's Little Soldiers, episode three. Today I'm going to be interviewing multiple Paralympic medalist Lucy Shuka. She's one of Britain's most successful wheelchair tennis players. I'll be asking her about how she stayed positive following a motorbike accident, and that left her paralysed from the chest down when she was only 21. Since the incident, she has made history at multiple Olympics, including the home one in 2012 in London. Most recently, winning silver medal at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Hello, Lucy. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So the last time that we had a conversation was sort of a class conversation, and I kind of had the idea that you'd be perfect for this podcast. Um, so obviously you joined us during a university lecture that I had. Um, and you talked about your career in wheelchair tennis and all of the things you did to overcome um, your injuries. And I, I, when, I, when I first heard that, I thought it'd be brilliant to have you on the podcast to kind of help explain sort of that you can do things um, even when you're faced with a lot of, of problems. Um, so I'd just love to really get into that. So can you just give me a little overview of sort of who you are and what you do? Uh, so um, my name's Lucy Shuka. Um, I'm currently a, a Paralympic wheelchair tennis player. Um, I had a motorbike accident back in 2001, which uh, I was 21 years old at the time. I'd just finished university. Um, you know, just bought a, a motorbike. Um, yeah, just bought a motorbike. Kind of walked into a job, and you know, was just kind of starting out on the the career side of life. Um, you know, passed my test and then 12 days later, I, uh, I broke my back, um, in a motorbike accident. Um, and I suppose that, you know, at that point in time, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and, you know, I spent 10 months in hospital, um, and on discharge from hospital, I met, a, a guy called Pete Norfolk, um, when I bought my first wheelchair, um, and he had a, a you know, a company that sold disability, um, disability products and I so I bought my chair from his company and you know we just got talking that I that I used to play badminton to a, a pretty high level before my accident um so he suggested you know try tennis and you know it's been almost what 20 years and I've now been to four Paralympics um have three Paralympic medals you know and I'm still competing to this day you know on the tour so obviously, as you mentioned there, you've, you've played a lot of sport before even your injury. Um, so you played badminton and you said you played for a high level. How high of a level did you play in? Um, you played with your, your brother, was it, as well? Was, um, yeah, so, so badminton, badminton very much ran in our family. So my parents played, my uncle played, uh, I've, my brother is 18 months older. Um, so, you know, naturally as a, as a kid, we just, you know, we played badminton, um, I was in the, the county teams uh, and got into the county first team, the adults, you know, the seniors, um, you know, and that was only when I was 16 years old. So, you know, I, I was good. I was talented. Um, you know, as much as I trained, uh, you know, and competed and my parents gave up an awful lot of time, you know, to, to kind of cart us around. Um, I also had a love of horse riding. So I maybe didn't put as much effort in as... I would have done maybe if I hadn't have had that. Um, and also, you know, as, as a youngster that, you know, is kind of getting into, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18, you start to, you know, have your friends and you start to go out. Yeah, um, of course. So I suppose, you know, I, I had a talent that I didn't necessarily fulfill and take 
you know, full advantage of it. Um, and, you know, it's something that I do regret now that I look back. You know, my brother played for, you know, for the England and, you know, potentially could have qualified for, for the Olympics. Um, so who knows? But, you know, that's, that's kind of why I speak, you know, to students themselves and say, you know, don't take things for granted because you just never know yeah. in life. <clears throat> yeah, of course. So obviously you're, you, you end up playing wheelchair tennis after your accident. Um, I have a question like, is, was there ever an option to do wheelchair badminton or is that not a, an established thing? Good question. So uh, back in, so I suppose I took it up in 2003 um, and at that time uh, wheelchair badminton didn't exist. So there's no reason why you couldn't go and play it. Um, yeah. you know, with friends, family, which is what I did with uh, tennis. But um, there wasn't a proper tour. Uh, so I think there was maybe one tournament in a year um, that I heard, you know, a few people kind of speak of. Um, but I suppose I think where the wheelchair tennis was already set up, um, I kind of fell into that um, and kind of fell in love with the sport. You know, I, I remember going and trying badminton once and I suppose that there was so much frustration of what used to be and what I was yeah. able to do um you know where obviously you know I had no I had no abs that worked and obviously badminton a lot of it is above your head yeah of um, course. and I was still readjusting to you know what life was now like um however you know fast forward you know 18 20 years um it's actually just been at the the last Paralympics so in Tokyo was the first uh, wheelchair, was it at Tokyo? I might have that wrong. It might actually be at Paris. Um, but wheelchair badminton is, um, is now going to be in the Paralympics. So I think it's in really small divisions as it's a new sport. Yeah. Um, but it's on, the, it's on the rise. So it is developing. out there. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Did you find that when you started, obviously, wheelchair tennis and you started training up and this is obviously before you, you may realize you're even going to get to the level of which you are now. Was there a lot of trans like transferable skills between when you used to play badminton, albeit obviously a lot different now, um, after the, the accident, but were there a lot of transferable skills in, in terms of the racket sports side of it? Yeah, I think, um, obviously it's, it's a racket sport and then I've got really good hand-eye coordination. Um, of badminton's obviously a lot faster, you know, with the shuttlecocks and they don't bounce. Um, yeah. so in terms of like my volley skills and my hand like skills and, you know, drop shots and kind of, I suppose people say like doing things, um, on the ball that, you know, isn't necessarily so normal. Like I, it gets me out of trouble. Um, yeah. and I, I definitely think that comes from having played badminton for so many years, um, I know that when I first started, I was very wristy in, you know, on a forehand and a backhand. Uh, whereas, you know, tennis, technically you shouldn't be so wristy. Um, yeah. But, you know, it kind of gives me a bit more spin on the ball at times. But I also, you know, you have to be a little bit more careful because the balls are actually that bit heavier and compared to a shuttlecock, mm -hmm. the rackets are heavier. Um, so, yeah, just uh, being aware and I always wear a support on the wrist just to be uh, kind of on the safe side. So before we go on to sort of the, the, the tennis side in your career, um, I just want to touch on sort of the incident. And so obviously you, you mentioned you, were, um, you had a motorcycle accident um, very shortly after sort of being able to get out on the roads. Um, obviously you were still very young at that point. And I kind of want to know 
what kind of went through your mind with, when it happened and stuff and like what 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 did you feel like were there times that you kind of thought that you wouldn't be able to do sort of certain things that you really wanted to do in life yeah um you know when you go back to 2001 I don't even know if you're alive um I, December I was <laughs> Okay, so yeah, so I had my accident in July. So yeah, so you weren't even born, which is really scary, yeah. actually, because it <laughs> shows that I'm getting on a bit. Um, but yeah, so you go back to then and, and the internet hadn't, it was just being launched. So, you know, social media wasn't out there. Facebook wasn't out there. Um, you couldn't type in, you know, spinal cord injury and kind of research to see what you've done. So when I had my accident... Um, I don't remember the actual accident itself. I remember lying at the side of the road and had mud up in my visor and my helmet and I had a friend on his bike and I remember saying to him um, that I couldn't feel my legs. But that's that's the only memory that I have. Um, yeah. And I was adamant then that I would, you know, I'd walk out of hospital, but obviously, you know, we all now know that the spinal cord is, is something that doesn't, it can't be fixed at the moment. There's no, there's no operation you know, I think they're getting closer and closer, but um, but it's not there at the moment. So, yeah, you know, there were definitely dark times. Um, you know, I spent seven weeks lying on my back, being turned by the nurses whilst the bones fused and became stable. Um, there was no no operation to kind of fix me. They they chose the option for the bones to naturally fuse as opposed to having rods in my back, which you know nowadays. Um, like looking back, I'm I'm pretty happy with that because a lot of people that I know that have the rods and the steel work, it it can become a problem. Um, yeah. But I lost, I kind of lost who I was. Um, you know, I struggled with my identity of who I was, you know, to see myself with a body that, you know, three quarters of it didn't work anymore. Um, I struggled to see my legs, you know, I was like, they look, they look fat in jeans um, uh, or in shorts and I, you know, I was just so self-conscious. Um, and you know, it took maybe a couple of years to kind of like readjust to kind of learn to kind of find who I was again and to be happy with who I was. Um, yeah. you know, and every day becomes an easier day. Um, and I was fortunate that there were, you know, I was in hospital with people that had worse accidents than I'd had. Um, so with, you know, a worse disability. So, you know, I ended up, even though I'd, you know, lost the function of, you know, my legs, um, there were some guys in there that had lost the use of their arms or didn't have full use of their arms. So I ended up, you know, helping them out. So, you know, quite early on, you kind of realize that I'm actually quite fortunate in one hand, yeah. even though, yes, I was facing a, you know, a, a life changing disability. Um, I think social media nowadays, it's amazing because people can, you know, go on and see what there is out there to see what you can do. And, you know, the fact that you can't walk and you can't change a light bulb, you know, in the ceiling, it's it's not such a big issue. You have so many things that you can try and do. And, you know, having friends and family that are awesome and that support you and, and want to help you, that, you know, nothing's, nothing's too difficult. You know, you there's a way to normally to navigate around it. Um, if you, if you just, you know, are, are op open to help. So you've gone on from having this obviously injury where 
you, you've lost three quarters is it, yeah it's three quarters isn't it of your body that you've lost control of um, yeah it's really it's literally to and, my chest and, so just below the yeah line. so and, and now you're obviously representing your country at, at the Paralympics and uh, you represent yourself and at, at, at other opens and stuff and different tennis tournaments um, the last time that we we sort of say spoke in inverted it wasn't obviously a one-on-one but um, you were preparing for the Australian Open I believe um, did, I, I, if I'm right did you get to the semi-finals or the final of that um, so there, uh, I got to the semi-final of the singles, um, and then yes. I got to the final of the doubles. You obviously made history at the London 2012 Olympic, uh, Paralympics, sorry, um, alongside yep. Jordan Wiley, is it? Yes, that's right. So, um, you secured a, a bronze whilst playing in the doubles and you became the first woman to win a medal for Great Britain in wheelchair tennis. So explain that. How did that feel like your home Olympics and you've just done an absolutely incredible achievement <laughs> yeah I think uh like Beijing was the first Paralympics that I qualified for and um just to get to a Paralympics was an achievement you know I never thought that I was I would a- would be able to um you know I was told I was too disabled you know my living my level of injury is quite profound um compared to the other girls that were on the tour um so I think the the knowledge and that experience of being at that first games kind of really kind of gave me the hunger and and losing to the bronze medalist in three in three sets um kind of that gave me that moment that I thought I actually could do quite good at this I could be quite good at this this sport um and then when London you know was awarded the the Paralympics and the Olympics it was it was incredible but I had no idea what that was going to be like and you know London absolutely smashed it like the Olympics went really well you know, there were yeah. no issues. Um, and then the Paralympics, it just propelled all Paralympic sport into, you know, the limelight. Um, you know, we had sold out stadiums, which just, you know, it just elevates like people's, uh, I suppose, their sporting abilities. Like you want to you wanna perform, um, you know, uh, competing at Eaton Manor at the um, the top end of the park. And, you know, when we got into the, the bronze medal match, you know, if you, if you win that match, then you go home with a medal, the you know, first ever medal. Um, of course. And if you lose that match, then you go home with memories. So it's a real, yeah. you know, it's a real kind of one that you really want to go for. Um, and we were never predicted to get a medal, but we knew that it was a possibility. Um, you know, we even faced two match points against us in that match. And, and it was in a tie break and I was serving and, you know, somehow made the serve, which was great. Um, and then, yeah, to come through it after it was over three hours of of tennis uh, was just three amazing. Hours. You know, sold out stadium, queues back over the bridge into the, into the the Olympic Park, and apparently it was yeah. being streamed over into Trafalgar Square on the big screen. So, from from all accounts, when we won the you know that final point, like like it was almost like the whole of the UK felt like it erupted with us. Um, yeah. So it was just amazing, and you know, to win that medal is. It's hard work that we've put in, but the teams that work with us, you know, our coaches, you know, friends and family that support us and, you know, and, and help us to to continue to do it. And, you know, even our federation to, you know, keep supporting and backing us. And yeah, it was just, it was amazing. So you went on to then qualify for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. 
Um, of course, COVID hit and we had the whole call off of the Olympics and all sporting, really, uh, sporting events. Um, so obviously that happened in 2021 instead. Did that change sort of the way you had to like train? Obviously, because normally I know from obviously doing sport coaching, there's sort of you have cycles and you aim to peak at a certain point. And obviously with the, the, the four year cycles in the Olympics, you aim to peak every four years specifically knowing that it was then delayed a year was there a sort of a change to your training schedule and the intensity and what 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 happened for on that side of things so tennis uh you know in tennis we compete in about 20 to 25 tournaments a year um you know every year so the paralympics comes around usually every four years um so obviously covid it then came around you know on the fifth year um but we also then still have the grand slams that are you know spread out through the the cycle each year there's four of them um so i suppose we're not necessarily peaking for a specific paralympics we're always looking to kind of um make our world ranking higher to be able to qualify directly into the the grand slams um and with that you're obviously then looking to keep your ranking high to get seeding positions um and then also to be able to then perform at the Paralympics. So um, when COVID hit, we were actually out competing in March out in America. Um, and we were halfway through a tournament. And you know, then we got an email from the tournament saying, you know, it's, it's cancelled. We're going to assist you in, in getting everyone home. Um, but that was the second week of a three-week tour. So all the players had their flights booked from the next location which was um yeah. like a seven hour um seven hour drive away or like a two-hour flight um so the knock-on effect then is you know we came back to the uk but things were still open so our you know tennis centers um uh the parks you know recreational tennis you know outside yeah everything course. was still going but then all of a sudden everything shut and obviously at that time, we didn't know whether the Paralympics were going to be delayed um, or cancelled yeah. completely. So I just was like head down. You don't know when you're next going to be going back on a, at a tournament. So, you know, we kind of, you know, me and my team sat down, you know, on, on Zoom calls. And then we just went, right, well, let's get on with fitness. So I actually used that time really, really well. I became fitter than I've ever been um I was smashing personal bests when you know we were eventually seeing our coaches and our S&C guys again um you know and training in different ways like in tennis you never really get a, a good block to do S&C so you yeah. know to, to suddenly have time and use it in a constructive way productively um in a way it was actually quite good um whilst also like the fear of travel again and, and seeing what was happening to the world. And like, to me, sport, sport could wait, you know, the world was really fighting course, something yeah. that was horrific. Um, but I made, you know, me personally, I made the most of having the opportunity to get good sleep, good recovery, but really good, like strength training at home, like going out on hand bikes, going out for pushes, Hill I was going to say, how how know, do you train just... and stuff for for that sort of thing? Because obviously, being sort of uh, in, in in a disabled sense, you can't do all the things that you would normally do. E.g., go on a run like that's that's unable. So, 
that is that how you trained mainly with hand bikes and stuff is that how you build your stamina up or sort of what's your training yeah. sort of routine look like so actually some of the training that I did in lockdown I've I've continued so I've made sure that that's yeah. maintained in my you know training now so um, I've got a, a stationary hand bike I also have one that I can use out and about outside um, and I'm fortunate that I lived you know five minutes from being in the countryside so literally could you know train at home on the handbike I had weights at home as well um had med balls uh so you know I was literally playing tennis with a sponge ball up against the side of the the flats where I lived um you know just trying to keep fit in any way that I could um and actually it it worked great because when I went back on court the the coaches were like you know you're you're moving better you're hitting better balls and kind of what's you know what have you done um but I was also lucky that I got access to a private school tennis court that um obviously the school was shut so I could go down with the person that I live with um so you know weren't breaking any of the kind of the government guidelines um and just trained differently like with basket feeds hand feeds um but it was just nice to have a little bit of normality um yeah you know at a time that was you know so very different from the norm so when the olympics were finally back on and you knew you were going to tokyo um you what was sort of how did it all work when you got over there because obviously it was still under very heavy restrictions um and there were obviously a lot of um sort of constant testing etc what was the games like in comparison to to the london one um obviously in, in a completely different sort of uh, worldly sense it, it, everything was different yeah i think um we had rio paralympics in between those two games oh so... yeah of course i forgot about rio <laughs> yeah that's right um so rio happened and you know the the stadiums weren't full they were they weren't actually all finished um so then yeah you know, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of a strange games. Um, so then to go into the Tokyo one where it would have actually been, if COVID hadn't have happened, it would have been an absolutely incredible games. Um, yeah. you know, the stadiums that they'd constructed were, you know, were just first class, you know, luckily we had, uh, covered courts, you know, we actually had rainy season, um, when we were competing. So we actually had to use the indoor court. Um, or the roof color covered court, um, mm-hmm. you know, which was a stadium court. So you would have had thousands of, you know, people or spectators there. But in fact, all you had were those that were supporting, um, you know, the, the, the GB like support staff. So those people yeah. that were there, that that's the only people that could come and support and to watch the matches. Like as athletes, we couldn't go and support other sports. Um, whereas a normal, you know, normal Paralympics, that is possible. Um, yeah. But it was kind of the whole time you were there. So on arrival, you had to go through this process of being, you know, PCR testing before we left, like three times on specific dates. Um, and then when we arrived, you had a PCR test and you couldn't leave the airport until that came back negative. Um, and then we went into a holding camp. And then the, actually the day that we went into the village, um, we were due to arrive about eight o'clock at night. And just as we turned up in the car park, our team leader had a phone call um, and we overheard him kind of, you know, they said, what, what are you doing here? As we turned up and he got off the bus 
and all of us had to stay on there. And, and it transpires that he actually, he tested positive on the test the night before. So we were all being tested every single night in the holding camp. Yeah. Um, so he got whisked off to a health hotel and then we were all sat there in a car park and, you know, Paralympics GB had to go through all of our phone data to then see, you know, how close we'd been, had we all been wearing masks, like what risk were we to everyone else? <laughs> yeah. So then the IPC felt that we weren't um, a high risk, but Paralympics GB then wanted to go, you know, just to make sure that we kept Paralympics GB house which is where we all all lived, um, safe. So then we were kind of, we were put into our apartments. We weren't allowed to leave for, I think it was 24 hours. So we had another lot of testing. Um, and then I think that was this case for like two or three days. And then, then we were allowed to go and train and we were allowed to compete, but we weren't allowed to use all the, the like the communal transport and the food hall so we had food being delivered to us. So it's a really, really different games. And I yeah, really hope that it, that doesn't ever get repeated because it kind of, it ruined it whilst I respect, yeah, of respect the, um, you know, the protocols that they had to put in place. And, you know, to win a, a Paralympic medal, having gone through all that just shows kind of, you know, the determination and the ability to still be able to focus and, and not let that affect you. Yeah, I was going to say, because you went on to win silver in, in the Tokyo yeah. Olympics, didn't you? How did yeah. that feel in comparison to the, the bronze you won in London? Was there sort of more relation that it's a higher sort of medal or due to the fact it was such a big achievement and in your home Olympics, was that one more special to you? I think the the London one will always be the one that I really, really treasure. Um, you know, it was an unexpected medal um, in a home games, the first ever one. The, the bronze in Rio, I felt was a disappointment. Um, yeah. And I think the silver, you know, I'm, I am proud of us as a team that we achieved it. I'm still a little bit disappointed that I felt that maybe we could have pushed for more. Yeah. Um, and I think the ultimate for any Olympic or Paralympic athlete is to win a gold medal. Um, of course, you know, that's the mind your... of an elite sport person. <laughs> they always strive for more. It is. I think... To have your own national anthem playing whilst on the podium is the ultimate, you know, the ultimate yes. dream. So, you know, I'm still really proud of us getting that silver. You know, it, it is incredible. Um, so, and I'm still very proud. Of, yes, I'm proud of it. While still, yeah, like you say, an athlete still strives for that, that dream ending, so to speak. So obviously, as you mentioned, um, the London 2012, it kind of opened up a lot of sort of opened everyone's eyes to, to, to different sports and, and to Paralympics especially. Um, and sort of in recent times, we've seen a lot more diversity open in sports. And I know that you're a big, you're a big advocate for the, um, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, do you feel like it's really coming along in, in sort of leaps and bounds in recent years? And how do you feel towards, towards it all sort of being more recognised and openly accepted? Obviously, recently we've had um, a footballer come out as the first openly gay footballer in I think was it 40 plus years I think yeah I think yeah I think I suppose like from my perspective I'd I'd love the world to get to a point where um you know you're in a relationship and it doesn't matter who the 
you know who your partner is you know whether it's male female or if someone's you know transgendered it's you know it's to me I'm I've fallen in love with someone who happens to be a woman and you know they they accept me for who I am um despite my disability they challenge me and make me a better person um and I, I'd love the world just to accept everyone for who they are. Of course. You know, we're all, we are all different in, you know, like characteristics and personality traits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, and I just, I wish the world was sometimes kinder and more accepting. Um, and there'll come a point, I think, in, in the future where, you know, this is being talked about now, whereas, you know, you go back 20 years and it wasn't spoken about, it just... It was like a very taboo kind of subject. It's a, it's a shame that people feel that they have to hide their true self because of the fear of what other people will judge. Um, but I do think every day we're getting better as a world, as a society. Um, and I think we are getting kinder, but there's still moments that happen, you know, whether it's race, gender, you know, sexual orientation etc that there's moments in in the world where crazy things happen and uh, yeah and it causes so much heartache afterwards of course so just to wrap this up really i want to find out from you who is your biggest inspiration first off in a general life sense and secondly in a sort of an, an icon in in tennis and wheelchair tennis for you uh, so I'll flip it around. So my my inspiration or my icon for in wheelchair tennis is a lady called Esther Vergeer. Um, she's a Dutch player who won like a she's in the Guinness Book of Records Guinness Book of Records um, for yes. four hundred and something matches in a row, winning streak in singles. Um, she won wow. gold in London. Um, I think I don't think she ever lost a singles match from the time that I started. Um, but, you know, even the fact that the way that she like kind of conducted herself, she was such a role model. She wasn't arrogant. She was very professional. She was humble, um, you know, and she was just a phenomenal player and a person. Um, you know, so to me, it, you know, I, I could look up to that person of how how they behaved and you know, how course, they behaved yeah. on court, off court, how they treated people. Um, and, you know, her, her win streak was just unheard of. That's 400 um, games is incredible. It's something like 447 or something. It's, yeah, That's it's, ridiculous. It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> so and then your, a your, singles matches. Yeah, and then your, uh, your main inspiration in, in life in general is... Do you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, really? You know, my parents, yeah, I, I'm really not sure. Like, my parents have taught me, you know, they brought me into this world. They taught me, like, manners and how to behave. And, you know, I feel that that's served me well in, in, the, in the world, you know. And, you know, I travel around the world and I have friends all over the place. And, you know, they welcome me back, which is lovely. And it, it shows that my parents did a good job. Um, so yeah, you know, my my partner is like an inspiration because they challenge me to make me a better person. Um, 
but yeah, so I'm not 100% sure how, how else Just to say. Just have multiple, multiple different influences as, yeah, as one I think, main thing. Yeah, I think that's quite healthy in that sense. It's, yeah, you of know, course. you kind of get all the good bits from lots of different people and, you know, who make you the person that you are and challenge you to be better every single day. And that, that to me is a good way to live life. Lastly, I just want to find out if you could give any word of advice to anyone who's gone through some problems or um, or doesn't know what they want to do in life, what would you say to them to give them some sort of hope and inspiration? Uh, I think... I've put you on I the spot, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you have. Um, I always say, uh, like, be kind to yourself. Um, you know, we're all going to face challenges and it's how we embrace those challenges um, and kind of find a way through them or, or around them if we have to, um, to navigate whatever we're going through at that moment in time. Um, I think we're all very good at being hard on ourselves. So I'm always saying like, be kind to yourself and to each other. Um, and, you know, we will always fail at something that we're gonna do. And that's okay, like we learn through failing to you know, try and be better next time. And you know, life is all about you know, challenges. They come at you whether you're ready for them or not, you know, like my accident. Um, and it's how you deal with that and how you kind of move forward. Um, and don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, there's, there's lots of people out there, whether it's friends, family, whether it's you know, a charity that you need to reach out to um you know there's don't don't be alone you know and and don't suffer alone that's that is one thing that i'm again i'm very passionate about it's it's being kind to yourself and and being kind to others and and know that we're we're all in this world together and remember that brilliant thank you very much thank you very much for coming on the podcast lucy it's been a pleasure speaking to you sort of finding out all about your your tennis achievements and how you managed to sort of bring yourself up and and finding a new sort of life um aspiration and, and sort of career and excelling ex- incredibly well at it um yeah thank you very much for joining us thank you thanks for having me great questions some of them are quite challenging <laughs> yeah. but um yeah it's been good to chat <laughs> <laughs>